totally not okay. But that's okay. A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. And I'm Tanya Bevan. <laughs> and why are we your hosts? Because as much as we love fairy tales and unicorns. Prerequisites for thespians. True. But sometimes you have to be the change you want to see in the world. To quote Drake. A.K.A. Gandhi. No, it's Drake. It says it right here. Are you on Instagram? <laughs> well, it was on the interweb, so it has to be true. Oh, okay. That's true then. Now that we've established ourselves as credible spokespersons... <laughs> <laughs> we get to tell you about who you're going to hear in this interview. For this episode, we got to interview... Drake? Uh, it, it, not for this one. Shoot. Yeah. Um, it's actually... Our guest is Katie Robinette, who is the executive director of Healthy Minds Canada. Awesome. Yeah. And during our conversation, we spoke about things like addictions and harm reduction. Also, why we might not want to necessarily use the word stigma when we're talking about mental health. She also goes on to speak about workplace depression and the effects it can have, as well as she um, talks about how film and her love of film incorporate in what she does on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I actually met her at TIFF. That's crazy. Uh, Healthy Minds Canada, for the past couple of years, has been putting on a lunch and learn they actually do a bunch of different sorts of lunch and learns we just went to one Mm -hmm. um but the past two years they've ran a lunch and learn in conjunction with tiff specifically with a film at tiff that focuses on some sort of aspect of mental health so this past year they just highlighted a film called the stairs which is a documentary on one of the community centers here in toronto and yes katie has a passion for film which you will hear about in our interview so with no further ado, let's hop straight into that. Hop, skip, and a jump. Katie Robinette, I'm the Executive Director of Healthy Minds Canada. And what does that role entail for you? So Healthy Minds Canada is a national charity. where our, our focus is on mental health and addictions, and we have been established since 1980, so we've been around for a long time, but we used to go under a different name, the Canadian Psychiatric Research Foundation. So under this name, it's been since 2010. Okay. So long before me, I started here in 2013, so this is my fourth year, I guess. Oh, congratulations for four years here. Yeah, 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 that's fun. <laughs> and what exactly do you do? The majority of my job, that's into planning events, so we do a lot of events in Toronto. I do funding requests, so we need funding to sustain ourselves. We are funded mostly by corporate sponsorships and private donations and family foundations. That's the bulk of our, our funding. Um, and so there's writing requests to get funding. There's, uh, we, we've about, when I came on board, we were closing in on the end of a run of about six years, for a six-year run on th- two or three core programs. Okay. And we decided um, that we were going to stop and evaluate those, pro- where, what were they accomplishing and where are we, is that still what we want to accomplish? And so, you know, in short, what our goals were in 2006, 2009 were, were very different than what they are today. Anti-stigma was a big thing and simply education and awareness from almost like a textbook case, like what is mental illness and what are the signs, symptoms, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So now we really want to stimulate action, teach people coping skills. How do you manage your own mental health? How do you take charge of it? How do you become the owner of your own 
uh, well-being. And at whatever spectrum you're on, on mental illness or on the addiction side, if you're in recovery, great. There's still a lot of mental wellness and avoiding relapse. And so, and how if you're a family member, how do you, what are the, I mean, of course you want to know signs and symptoms, but how do you get treatment for someone who doesn't want treatment? How do you cope and manage your existence? How do you do self-care for yourself when there's all, you know, issues going on in the family home? And what if it's your parent and you're a young child? So we've got some children's programs that deal with that. Wow. So a lot of these action, action items taken, and also none of our programs before really incorporated the lived experience. And so we, that was a number one request from our, especially our adult-focused uh, events, which were really top researchers and psychiatrists talking to family members. So when you say lived experience, you're saying people who have been dealing with these sorts of issues yep. are now on board and part of these programs. Yeah, and at whatever stage in their recovery continuum. So they might be having a bumpy road and it's in their first year of, of you know, getting diagnosed or getting treatment. It might be that they're 25 years sober or have been stabilized uh, living with schizophrenia for a number of years and have their own business. So it's whatever, you know, we want to mix that up so that our, our, all of our events are really, people can see themselves in it and see not just in theory something that works but in the practical way of how something's being applied. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of our events right now, we've done one of, of each, except for a few of the series, which I'll go into, which now have uh, done multiple, and one even has a national footprint. But the goal was to get one under our belt, get some user feedback from it, some, and then apply for some funding to take these national. And so I can go into that a little bit later. But the programs are really key for us. But we still fund research. We have a big partnership with... Pfizer, where we fund uh, research in the area of workplace depression, mm -hmm. and we publish resource handbooks. One is, they're called Under the Banner When Something's Wrong. One is for families, one's for teachers to use in the classroom, and one's for the workplace for managers and employers to use uh, as they're sort of navigating how their workplace, how to deal with uh, employees uh, and, and what are the legal aspects there. So very useful practical tools, all written by top psychiatrists, uh, but also talking, not down to people, but talking in layman's language. The teachers one had some images and, and, and you know, nice ways to to figure out what to do in a real life situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, online tools. So we've gotten big on that in the years since I've been here. We've got a, a new, uh, it's not new, it's now two or three years old, but a family tool called Supportive Minds where a parent can go on and fill out a behavioral profile of their child and it navigates them to where they'll find some coping skills that they can pick and choose, customize their own coping tip sheet, mm -hmm. strategy tip sheet, and put that on the fridge for when a babysitter comes over, take it to the classroom for a parent-teacher interview night, so really handy. And also a Feeling Better Now tool, which is for, uh, it's, it's really a product that companies buy and give to their employer employees. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the user can fill out a behavioral profile on the, on the site. It's non-diagnostic, but it will lead you and connect you to the, the treatment plan that is correct for you, and you're supposed to share that with your doctor and work in concert with them. Uh, but it also provides you ins to psychiatrists, a whole network of people that can really help you. Um, and so that's really nice. We offer one-off services to that to our community, too. You can just log into our website and go ahead and do that. And we have a blog series. We've got quite a prominence online. Uh, online is huge, so people can access information 24-7. Mm -hmm. uh, but the blog is something I'm really proud of. We have a, an, a community, uh, not a community manager, a communications manager, who that's her little baby. And so every six months, she rotates through a team of 10 bloggers. They each blog once every two weeks. So we've got a, a new blog up every day. 
and they are all lived experience and they just talk about whatever it is that is going on with them and it can be from you know like my life reflecting back as a drug addict to bulimia to um, uh, bipolar anything wellness there's some of that and so uh, and these get rotated out and, and they really help drive traffic to our website so it's a win-win-win and they drive traffic back to the, all these bloggers not all of them but a lot of them have their own right. web page so it drives traffic back to them and it just amplifies them that gives a larger voice to everyone we get a, we get content they get you know healthy minds canada backing them on their content it gives everyone a bit, bit of a bigger platform to talk about mental illness and addictions and uh, a bit more of a stretch for the larger conversation about right. mental health in it's general. almost like taking bell let's talk one day campaign and making sure it's all year long it's every right. day yeah, We're and all talking. That's one of the goals with this podcast as well. Yes. I love the idea of the Bell Let's Talk campaign and yep. being in the entertainment industry. What's beautiful about that day is that we see a lot of, especially in the comedy community, yep. a lot of the uh, comedians who have Twitter accounts and are very active on that all use that day to talk all about yep. mental health. Yep. So it, it was very eye-opening to see how much action was put towards that conversation on one day and one made day. me really wonder why it yep. was only one day yeah well one of the things we do here too is we build out a national campaign a month in advance of it so what we do is we get a campaign manager for bell let's talk healthy minds canada bell let's talk awareness day awareness month mm -hmm. and we start the conversation early and they the campaign manager reaches out and, and gets uh 12 12 or 13 regional campaign organizers and they get a team underneath them to encourage people to raise awareness about the day, get people psyched and energetic. And what it does is it creates communities throughout Canada of people, top Twitter people, really, this is all driven on Twitter, mm -hmm. that people can go to as a resource all year long and be a, sort of a buddy online and maybe even meet face-to-face. -face. There was a year that Clara did a big ride across Canada one year in a tandem right after Bell Let's Talk. And so that network allowed us to have a footprint so we could go and cheer Clara on in different cities where she she uh, cycled. Oh wow. So it, it was really cool and it's really neat and it's really fun and it's really touching. I mean I get to not just learn from the, these people that are nameless people on Twitter that I consider part of our community but you'll see in the 11th 12th hour of Bell Let's Talk Day people are tired but they're cheering each other on to keep the conversation going raise five more cents do more for Bell Let's Talk and and keep that conversation going and then we try and keep it going all year long so these networks really exist for a reason we, we like to think and we have people the day after saying how do I get involved next year I will you know maybe they were just a team member they want to be a team a regional manager this year that's amazing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's really fun I met you through a lunch and learn that yes. was connected with Haven't TIFF those yet. and what's incredible is that uh, you brought up a, an interesting point about bringing people who have real life experience yes. onto um, onto the platform to have conversations, to join in the conversations and to give a, a more of a light on what it is actually like to live with addiction or mental illness. Right. And the film that uh, you centered on for this year's Lunch and Learn at TIFF the was stairs. exactly that, The Stairs. If yeah. you could talk a little bit about why you decided and how you got in conjunction with uh, the film director, that specific film. For yeah. Time. So I'm a bit of a... I'm fairly aggressive online, and so if someone's got a LinkedIn profile, if their email's online, I'm going to go after them if I want them for something. It's up there for a reason. It's up there for a reason. <laughs> so what I did, so we, in two years ago, we started our Lunch and Learn series. They are 
free. So we put them on. They're never a charge to the public, and they are open to the public. They're and great. We, yeah, and we are very lucky to get donated space 90% of the time. Wow. So we don't. At, we put them on at no cost except to film it. So we want that event online for other people who couldn't make it because we mm -hmm. only do these events in Toronto and there's no plan to go national. We really like to curate them here. Okay. And what we do is we tend to, not always, but we tend to do them around some big event that's happening in Toronto to tie into a theme. And so we, when uh, the federal election was looming and there was talk of legalizing marijuana and Ontario was talking about liquor in liquor store, in, in convenience stores, and OLG was going to do, Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corp was going to do online gambling. So they were developing all, all this. All those things were happening at once. And so we did a lunch and learn on the sin industry, mm -hmm. which was really fun and really informative. And so we had a gambling addict on the, on the, a re, someone who's been working through those issues. And we had a lot of people from the, you know, liquor, marijuana, and uh, gaming industries on the panel. So that was top heavy on professional but also we had a few of the, the lived experience mm -hmm. we've also done one in tandem with the para pan am games so we did physical and mental disabilities you know e so much as i love bell let's talk even in bell let's talk you never see someone in a wheelchair as one of the faces of bell right let bell let's talk so people with physical challenges also have mental illness i mean we can often look at because uh, uh, we everything's so visual right and we can often look at someone who's come back from war and is missing a limb and we go oh may, i bet you they've got ptsd too so you can often attach sort of mental illness or or issues with a physical disability but very frequently we're not looking at someone with a, a very challenging physical disability and also thinking oh my you know they have schizophrenia too mm -hmm. they've been diagnosed with that so how do we, so we talked about that, and that was really neat. We did that in partnership with Ability Online. It's a 100% online tool that, it's like a little chat room. There's resources where people with physical and, and Ability men, Online? Ability Online. Physical okay. challenges can go and have a, like a community, because it's very hard sometimes for some people with physical challenges to get out, and you know, accessibility is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, but they also found Ability Online came to us because they were finding that there, a lot of the chat was coming around mental illness, and so they've created a unique portal for that, and they wanted to promote that a little bit, and we jumped at the opportunity to work with them. And... But, but our, you know, last year, so la to get back to your TIFF one, <laughs> last year, uh, I thought, because I volunteer for TIFF, I love TIFF, I'm a, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm a TIFFer, I love TIFF, <laughs> I you know, I, I wear that orange shirt. And it's I, great I buzz in the city. It is, it's a great vibe, and I love seeing the movies, and I get right into it. But I thought, why are we not taking advantage of this? And so I scoured the, the uh, TIFF website last year to see if I could find a film that had mental illness or addictions as a subject matter. And I came across I Smile Back, which was starring Sarah Silverman and it had very low presence online, but it had received wonderful reviews at Sundance, and especially Sarah Silverman's portrayal of, of the character in that. Whatever first non comedic performances. Yeah, yeah. like re a really powerful role for her. And so I reached out to the director and got a response and I but it wasn't it was a nibble it wasn't a, a bite mm -hmm. and I got in touch with the I think I got bounced to the 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 agents in in LA that were handling the distribution of the film and we lost contact over a little while and all of a sudden I guess it turned out that in Canada a different agent was taking over in the Canadian market for the TIFF for TIFF purposes right Canadian distribution so I finally got a hold of them they reached out to 
Amy Koppelman, who's the author of mm -hmm. the book, the original book, and of the what turned into be the movie, and the screenwriter who adapted her book to the movie, and the director. And they got, we got a yes, we got it all coordinated, and it worked, and we tied it into TIFF. We got an actress who used to work on Street Legal. She was an actress from Street Legal, who's also a psychologist, who sort of wears two hats to be the moderator. So we were super lucky with that. It was one of our best attended ever Lunch and Learn events. And so we, I went out of my way to make this happen again this year. And that one was wonderful. I, I, I was at the I Smile Back one as well. Got to meet yeah. Amy and she signed a copy of her book. Amy's she was so wonderful. Nice. And you said that you're still in contact with her. Yeah, she's great. Well, she's mm -hmm. got another book out now. And so she was looking on how to get uh, some funding or an in to come to the Waterfront uh, Book Fair book. Anything, there, there's something. So I was. Uh, yeah, for uh, it's a literary convention. Yeah, mm. I'm not sure how well she did there. I know that I did make contact with someone there to try and help her out, but I know she needed a unique Canadian distributor, and I don't think she had that yet because they're. Because it's Canadian, Canadian voices. Content. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So she didn't have that Canadian tie. Oh. Um, but other, but otherwise, I mean, that that was just remarkable. She was amazing, and I'll do whatever if she ever wants to promote anything up here. I'll I'll help her out. I really liked her a lot, yeah. and the same with Hugh Gibson. I mean, he he was the person who I reached out to. This uh, is the director, the director of the film this year. Of the stairs, mm -hmm. and the the You know, we had a short list of three films, and the stairs was one of them. And he was he got back to me, and he I was super excited to work with him. And and then we got to see the film, and that really hit home. It was a really interesting movie to watch. I thought it was very well done. The passion behind it, I mean, like clearly was evident at our lunch and learn. And to anyone listening, the video will be up on our website soon. Um, but but you know. Really interesting because he also brought to the panel one of the stars of the film. I'm doing air quotes; no one can see that. <laughs> but um, a non-actor, a non-actor. So I mean, it's a documentary. So Roxanne from the film, who was just hilarious in the movie. If you see that, she's got some one. She's got no filter. So she she had some some one-liners in the movie that just made the whole audience when I was watching it laugh out loud. Aww. But but Hugh, you mean you could really sense his dedication during that lunch and long talk. So and then we got Jeff Pavier, who is the program director for. Or Rendezvous with Madness, a film festival that Toronto has solely for mental health films. Which is incredible. Yes, and so the conversation, I mean, Mo Jeff was a brilliant moderator for that and really drew out some really interesting conversation around the nature of har this, the issue of harm reduction as opposed to addiction treatment, right? So it, we, we focus a lot of space and time into addiction treatment and abstinence-based programs, but not a lot in, in harm reduction. And so it was not only an eye-opener for me, but it was very informative to the audience. And we had a lot of people from the audience too who, you know, asked great questions and got really engaged. Plus, the, the fact that it was a well-done documentary made in Canada, made in Toronto. Right was down the street from... Right down the street from yeah. us was a beautiful thing. And it got a lot of great feedback at, at, at TIFF. The buzz oh, was great. really good. Sold out audiences. And it's opening at the Bell Lightbox Theatre on October 6th. So there is an opportunity for anyone who missed it at TIFF to see it public release. Oh, that's great. I, yeah. I love the fact that it was, um, as I was in attendance... It was a film that was focused on people who are not actors. It was a documentary, and it was it was framed in a way that didn't try to create its own bias on how the right. stories were told. Uh, the director said that he just wanted to put the camera on them and follow their stories, and it was right. a, a beautiful, uninterrupted way of relaying what it's like to live with addiction and to help others with addiction. Yeah, that's what I liked about it, because it wasn't a message that harm reduction is better than, or is the only way, or this is the way 
you know, forward, it just presented it mm -hmm. as is, and that these people's lives have been improved. You can clearly see from the film by this harm reduction thing, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't shoving your face in it. It, it was just. A, it was a story. It really that that's very empathetic. Yeah, very. Yes, because the characters were humorous, and you got to they let real. they let us in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. That's so he was a lucky big that. part of, I think, what would probably lend to the success of the film, the fact that he was uh, able to find uh, people who were so willing to be vulnerable yes. enough to share those sorts of experiences, yeah. especially in the face of so much stigma, as you said. There is there is such noise to cut through, but to sit back and just show yourself how you are, to tell a story as it is and not try to reconstruct it in a way that you think an audience will be able to understand it. Right. Just put it out there and say, this is the truth. This is it. You can, is, you can take a look at it and, and understand it. Yep. You can join the conversation, even the conversation about the film afterwards. Yep. Uh, I had the same reaction. I, I had a complete 180 shift of understanding what harm reduction was yeah. as opposed to the, the sorts of bylaws that are placed to try to, again, stigmatize what addiction is, in a sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I went too deep into laws or the legal aspect of anything, although I know that came up in the Q&A after, mm -hmm. but it's certainly, I mean, on the human level, and that goes back to what film is able to do, right? And one of the programs that we have here is called Movies for Mental Health, and it's our university and colleges program. And it's really, the lead on that is Art with Impact. It's a, it's a company, it's an organ, a charity or an organization based out in California. And we partnered with them to bring that up to Ontario. And now they, they, we've got together, we've got a footprint all across Canada. So oh, within wow. a year, and a half that grew from one or two events as a test to really a, a national footprint so we're super thrilled with that but one of the great things with that is and what it really proved which I knew anyway because I'm a fan of film is that film as a medium can really get people to I mean you you can it one removes the situation from you so you can see yourself in a film and not make it feel like, oh, they misportrayed me. You can you, you sort of see certain characters, but you're still looking at a character, right? Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden you find that you've, you're empathetic and you're crying or you're laughing along with whatever storyline is going on. So you're drawn in, not kicking and screaming, and all of a sudden you walk out and go, my mind was changed by that movie. Yeah. Or, you know, or that was just a great story and I loved it and it was entertaining. But, but it impacts you. And so in these movies for mental health things, we show little mini... Um, indeed submitted documentaries and they, or but they're they're not really but they can be mini movies that are kind of they're not they're not like a documentary like the stairs mm -hmm. um but they're short they're about five to seven minutes and we you watch the film together and then you break out into little groups discussion groups and you talk about how that made you feel what you saw what you learned and then you come together back as a group and then talk collectively as to what each group felt and learned and then oh, you watch great. another one and they do three films per session and that's different from your lunch and learns different from our lunch and learns yeah these are really for the university and college crowd and so they're held on university they're open to the public but they're held on campuses okay and they but they're really powerful because again someone who might be in university and might not see the level of the impact that you know, a poor diet or eating or whatever can have, especially if they're, they've already had a depressive episode, how that can lead, you know, you've got to be super on guard to make sure you're treating your body well to ensure strong mental health. And so they can see how maybe 
something gets escalated and start to take precautions. So it allows for a little bit of, you know, preventative type medicine, self-care, and, and when to check in to your, with your doctor or to see a counselor on, on campus because they've just seen something on the screen that they go, oh, I, I recognize that behavior in me, or my best friend or my roommate or my, someone in my class has that, how do I approach that? And so it gets people talking, mm -hmm. but they're not, ta they're not standing up there saying, this is me, I suffer from anxiety, and, and you know, they're not ready to be the spokesperson yet, but yet they've got it, and so it, it allows that dialogue to go on one remove from the individual. Yeah, that's a great method. Yeah, uh, with far reach, you're all over, you're across Canada. You said yes, that's amazing. Yeah, to go back to uh, an earlier point, you said that you you didn't delve too deep into the the idea of like the bylaws, the laws surrounding stigma. Yeah, does Healthy Minds Canada have uh, any goals that are political in nature? No, so we don't have an advocacy arm. I mean, I, we we have we we create a platform for the for anyone to have a presence, so to have a voice. And when I curate panels for whether it's a full day conference on recovery, whether it's a full day conference on schizophrenia, whether it's a full day or a one, one, a one hour panel discussion on lunch and learn, I curate panels where people have unique voices. And so they can argue for, they can say whatever they want, promote whatever works for them. Because the more people can get an idea of, you know, everybody's path is, their, is individual. We all share little bits of our story. We can all relate, but we're all on this journey by ourselves. Like no one other person is yep. going to share my journey. No one other person is going to share yours. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we can get people in a room and have at least someone on the panel speak to at least one person in that audience, and then we've made a hit, right? And the, you know, even better is to have four people up there, four to six people up there, and they're reaching into collectively the whole audience because little things that they say are gems picked out at different points. So I'm not one to try and say this isn't the way to do something and this isn't, especially with our um, sin industry one, right? They're, they're the yeah. panelists. We're definitely talking rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. But Healthy Mice Canada as an organization does no lobbying and does no advocacy work as an organization. Uh, we remove ourselves from that. As a charity, we're limited in the amount we could do anyway. Certain restrictions based on our charity status would restrict us to, I think it's 10% of our funds can go to any effort to lobby or advocate. Uh, and I just avoid that altogether. My former job is as a lobbyist. So oh, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm, quite, I'm fairly familiar with some of the, the old rules and the old way to do it. And in one, one hat, I, I was like a, an unregistered lobbyist, sort of acting, not lobbying, but advocate. And so there's all these different hats and rules and regulations to, to wear. Um, but I, I tend not as this organization. There are a number of reasons why, um, but, but we haven't really, I think it would be, you know, very difficult. I've got... We, we have a very small staff. We've got three staff members here. It's incredible that you do so we much. Do some, we rely on interns and volunteers. So we have yeah. a great team of, of people that really, really work with us. But for me to come out and say, this is where Healthy Minds Canada is, and this is our policy stance, I would need to work to get my communications manager on side with me. I would need to get our online community manager with me and the collective board. And it would be very unlikely, I might be the spokesperson, but it would be very unlikely that it would be my viewpoint. It would most likely be a collective of the board. And I can guarantee you that when it comes to mental health and addictions, we're probably not all on the same page in terms of anything that would be coming down the pipe with legislation or, or anything. And so we kind of like the, the ability to let individuals speak for themselves 
rather than us speaking for the individual, right? Uh, one of my jobs was as an in-house lobbyist for the Ontario Medical Association. And the first rule as being a lobbyist with them was that I never spoke for the organization. We had a, a, a press secretary who would speak for the organization. Uh, she was really the only one other than the CEO. The goal is to have the, pre the, the president elected position, who's a doctor, speak for the organization and other elected members of the Ontario Medical Association mm -hmm. who are doctors. They speak for themselves. It's their organization. It's not me So I would open doors. I would organize meetings. I would brief them on notes, script them on what to say, um, you know, help them fine-tune their message, which I certainly can do behind the scenes here. But I would never, in my wildest dreams, think to speak for all of the people with mental illness, all of the people in the mental illness profession, and all of the people with addictions and addictions profession with one voice. Mm -hmm. Like, that would just be very, very, I think, challenging. And I, I, I think it's very difficult for any one person to be able to do that. Speaking of voices, you, the organization absolutely does have a voice. Yes. And um, a, lot of, a, a lot of what you're doing is, I'm assuming, um, part of the messages that you do collect through your, your board, your investors, other businesses that are in conjunction with uh, Healthy Minds Canada is, do you see that that is, does it have any positive effect, yeah. negative effect? So one of the things I, you know, we work with pharmaceutical industry, we work with the banking sector, there are a lot of different sponsor, program sponsors and, and, and company and, and, you know, Silver Dinner is our annual fundraiser, so we've got companies that sponsor uh, that and all funds raised help to support, you know, our programs that don't have unique uh, sponsors attached to them, specifically the Lunch and Learns are a good, good example. Um, but what we do is have discussions with those sponsors and try and work to make sure that we've, we're synergized, so the right message. So, for example, with our research fund, our, our research uh, grant, we partner with Pfizer, which is a pharmaceutical company. So we aren't... It's a $50,000 award. The one for 2016 is $225,000, and we've done a $100,000 before. The research that, that we are undergoing together, though, that we're putting calls out for, for grants, granting opportunities, is not for testing drugs. I mean, that would be a huge conflict of interest for us. We wouldn't want right. to go there. Pfizer doesn't want to go there. What we're looking at is behavioral issues around the depression, workplace and depression. So it's got to be for research that's already, the baseline has already been conducted. This is continuing that research. And what we want the research to be able to do is find ways to get people either let, you know, stay at work longer with, with depressive episodes or not have to take days off or you know, the return to work is faster. Ways to manage it. Yeah, but in the workplace environment. So one of the biggest, I mean, the biggest cost to companies in Canada is absenteeism, and it's most often caused by depression. So what can we do to help companies lessen that burden? Um, and get employees to work and being productive faster because I don't want to be non-productive. I think everyone wants to be productive. And so in what way? And so what, what, that's one of the examples of working together. We didn't come up with that uh, goal and objective. Pfizer didn't come up with it. We came up with it together. Where do, where do your strategies, goals, and ambitions lie, and where do ours lie, and, and how can we come up with the best possible thing? Similarly with, with Janssen or with Lundbeck, any of the other uh, pharmaceutical companies, so if they have an interest in, you know, in schizophrenia medication or if they're big in the bipolar scene or if it's depression or if it's anxiety or ADHD, we try and align sort of some of the work that we do around those areas so the audience is, gets a benefit 
but not from not from them pushing medication on anyone. It's just that they're learning from, from the content that's being discussed. They get speakers up on stage who have lived experience that they might look and see and say, we want to use them for our internal spokespeople and, you know, whatever. It can Go be out. a win-win-win for everything. So we really try and work closely together, you know, with TD. They're our biggest funder of the Silver Dinner, and we'll work with them throughout the year to curate um, panel discussions and, and workplace mental health strategies. Some companies like to solely fund in the youth mental health space. Scotiabank is a big sponsor of our movies for mental health. And so it really, it's tying in what works best for everyone, which is, you know, sometimes it, a company will say, we just really love all the work that you do and we want you to be able to use this to your advantage. Some family foundations are like that too and some individual, most individual donors are like that. Uh, and some family foundations uh, will only want us to, don uh, to fund research hardcore research into some dedicated area so we can be very tailored with donor requests to make sure that their money goes to the impact that, the area where they want to have the most impact. When money goes towards research, what team do you look to to do that research or are you doing it all yourselves? No, so we don't do no, no, we we'd put a call out. So we would put an award or a grant out, a call to tender. Uh, the People would come in and they, the applications or proposals would be reviewed by a professional advisory board chaired by a member that's got no affiliation with any of the requests that have come in. So okay. there's a huge guiding principle around that. Research has really gone down in our, our mandate. And right now the only, well, we don't have any open research because the Pfizer one just closed. But we, have, we do have some money in restricted funds, so waiting to get more pooled into that so that we have a large enough amount to issue a, a tender for, for something. And so um, I think there's three sort of pools in there, um, anxiety, depression, and schizophrenia, I think are the three different ones, and, and those are, are areas that we, we really, because of the size of donations, we, we have to uh, leverage, you know, to, to issue a lot of these <clears throat> at the $5,000 mark for the work involved isn't worth it on our time, and it's not worth it for the proposals writer time. Right. So we'd like to do a $25,000 one, and we don't, in, in each individual category, we don't have that amount of money yet to do it. We used to have a great partnership, talk about legislation and government, but with the Canadian Institute of Health Research. And so we used to give that money to them, and they would help do administer these, uh, these research grants for us. And that was a wonderful partnership, but they have now, talk, research going up in cost, they have said that they don't deal with any research grants under a million dollars, so, so we don't, we're not in that league. And so we, we've had to break off that relationship. Hmm. Well, they broke it off. <laughs> that was that was their choosing. Other way, it's done. other way around. <laughs> but that was really good. So we would give them the funds, and well, we would keep hold of the funds, but they would administer the the call out and then the research granting, and they would tell us who won, and we would issue the funds to them and do a little bit of a write up on them and and feature them in our annual newsletter and, and our website. And so you can still there are quite a number of recipients of those awards still on our website, so you can look under past research. Is, uh, is that research documented? Is it somewhere online that people can reach yeah. through you? and a lot of it is still ongoing, and we keep in touch from year to year with our researchers to check in and see if they have any major updates. Some of them are really neat. There's a man who used to work out of, uh, Dr. Paul Arnold, I, I believe is his name, who used to work out of Sick Kids, but he's moved to University of Calgary uh, and the medical centers around there. So about three, he wears about three hats. And he does a lot of work with children and mental health, and he's got, he, he, he designed a spit test that can test 
for behavioral issues, I think ADHD or, or I can't remember what. And, uh, but it was proving really successful, but the, he, he was great because a lot of research can, can write back in very analytical language and we have to spice it up a bit so yeah. that our audience can get excited about it. Mm -hmm. But he would give us pictures of smiling kids and a lot, you know, little, little He made little it very kids. easy for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He spoon fed us some of the great content. So we a really liked test. it. So he's analyzing spit. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and got a lot of kids together at the Ontario Science Centre to do a spit test day to show kids how it worked. And that is interesting. Teaching kids about science. And yeah, he's got that real, you know, Sick Kids is such a wonderful hospital and, and mm -hmm. they do a lot of great work there, but he really embodied that spirit of bringing kids in to learn about the science while they were sort of being part of the research and mm -hmm. getting them excited about what they, were, what they were undergoing. And starting the conversation young. Yeah, for having sure. Having them in the know yeah. of how it also is... Uh, unearthed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, now, to go back to the idea of, uh, you said that back in the day you focused a lot more on, on stigma and the conversation surrounding mental health. Now the organization focuses on action. Right. What kind of emphasis is still placed on the conversation about stigma? So we don't we don't like to use the word stigma. Okay. You've oh. just used it about a thousand times now. Okay, I'm going to bleep it out we every time. We don't like that word at all. <laughs> All and 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 there's and I'm going to repeat the word too because there, it's a difficult word to find a good substitute for. Mm -hmm. But but one of the the number one thing that prevents people from seeking treatment is the self stigma or self knowledge that anything's wrong. So you've got to first educate people to look out for signs and symptoms, and then you can teach them how to communicate and that it's not a problem and how to communicate to your doctor and how to be fairly persistent. And so. Prep yourself. If you're going into your doctor and you've got a doctor's appointment and you've been dealing with, let's say, three months ago, you had a depressive episode that lasted for, let's say, a month. But it's over now. It's been over for two months. And you're up and you're functioning. And you go to the doctor's office and he says how you're doing or she says how you're doing. And you say, fine, right? It's all forgotten. You've, you, and you're just trying to get in and out of there quickly because you've got a thousand things to yep. do that day, right? That's a, that's <laughs> it's a gone. I don't have time to think about it now. And the doctor has no time. These doctor's visits are quick. Mm -hmm. And the doctor believes you because you're looking healthy and everything's good. How are you sleeping? Fine. You know, whatever. So we want people to journal. So if you've had these episodes, prep yourself so that you're armed with data. It's not maybe scientific, but it's, quant it's qualitative. It's yours. You yep. own it. It's a story. And you can remind yourself going into the doctor's office, here's what I was thinking and feeling, you know, those days. This is real for me. I'm not that way now, but I don't want to go back to there. Is there someone I can see or what would you recommend? Or having that, you know, how do you start that conversation with your doctor? Mm -hmm. And if your doctor is saying, disregard it, whatever, you might want a second opinion because a month of a depressive episode is a long time. I mean, maybe he's asking, was there a funeral? Was there something, right? Maybe he's asking the right questions isn't fully engaged. And maybe, yes, some life event happened and, and that's, you can figure that out right there. But, it, you know, if he's dismissive, not great, right? You want him engaged. You want him listening and curious and trying to learn more about this pattern of, of behavior that's been going on. Mm -hmm. So those conversations, talk, how do you talk to your teacher? So they're, they're, it's, it's more of a self-stigma. Now, that said, there, there are issues in, in collective areas. So if you look at workplace mental illness, coming out to your employer, like coming out, like the old, the yeah. old term that people use for, for gender preference, is, is the same. That's how the feeling is, though, for a lot of people. How do you tell your boss? Do you tell your boss? At what time do you tell your boss? Like, 
all the, do you tell your colleagues too? How open I are you? I think coming out is a good term because it, it does have that, uh, I, I don't think it's a term that should be only used for a particular, yeah. like for uh, sexual orientation or gender, but it, it's an enclosed feeling. If you're living with something that you don't understand, that you have what, what you call like a self-stigma about, right. it's already cloudy enough to figure it out for yourself and to put it into words and figure out how to communicate that. Yeah. To open up that door seems so and much you know, harder. back in my day, if I was having any issues at all, my dad or my mom would say, snap out of it, or it's just a phase, <laughs> yep. or whatever, right? Yep. So I think we have to listen to children a little bit more and be able to say, to be able to say, like, they own their feelings, right? They cannot be, what they're feeling is never wrong. It's how they act on the it, right? Feeling. They might be acting out in different ways that can be wrong and might be something you want to look at. Right. But what they're feeling, they own, and you can't deny them that. So we really need to allow, get parents and adults, and when we're adults, other adults, to appreciate that we own our own feelings, and, and we have to, that has to be recognized. Now, I don't need special treatment because of a certain way, and I shouldn't demand that, right? It's work just like a classroom is a collective, and your the teacher has to run a classroom for the collective good. Mm -hmm. One student can't always be causing trouble, but it's how do you manage that? And so if, if a child is seeing someone, let's say, with ADHD, interrupting, being a, whatever, they're, you know, ha and they're punished for it, how is that other child who might start to exhibit some of these signs, they're not going to be asking for help because look what that just happened to them. But if they've got a teacher in the classroom who can manage some of their behavioral issues, like get the child with ADHD to uh, do a lot of tasks or get them very super involved in each lesson planning so that they're e using their energy in a positive way, uh, then other students are looking and saying, well, that student they're not being shamed for what's happening to them, right? right. So that they're, if they start to see by example that people are accepting and are empathetic and are accommodating to certain uh, mental health issues, that's better. That creates a positive environment, and so people are more likely to ask for help that they need. The other, the other big thing is the addiction side, and so people who are in active addiction are often in denial. And so it's not necessarily the shame or stigma of seeking treatment they don't want the, I can do this on my own, right? I can, I can stop drinking whenever I want, yet day after day after day they're not stopping. So it's a little bit of denial. Then you get into how do I tell people because, oh my God, I might relapse. Well, relapse is a, nat I hate to say it, but it's a natural part of addiction recovery is that you're 99%, I mean, like a lot of people are going to relapse somewhere along their journey. We hope not. We hope that if one day someone wakes up and stops drinking and woohoo, their life is back to normal. But that's not the case. It's a hard journey to get back into to get a full and functioning life. So how do you do? You put that on your resume if you're explaining a year of absence from a treatment center and, and a, a, some time away, sort of to recover. How do you how do you do that? And that's a lot of sort of where the stigma and judgment comes in. If I'm a, a policeman and I'm at work and I've, I'm traumatized by me shooting someone in the line of duty, which was justifiable and I'm not being punished for it, there's been no sanctions, but that was normal course of a day's job, and six years later, six months later, a week later, I'm suffering PTSD. If I tell people, I could be let go of my, I'm not going to be frontline duty anymore. Same within the military, right? If, if you're, commercial, if you're a, a military pilot, or let's say in the aviation industry, you're a pilot, you're not going to be flying a plane 
if there's a history of severe mental illness or a, a, even an epi episodic mental illness. So those are areas where how do you come out and say, but I can still do my job and here's a doctor's note. You know, how do we have those discussions when it could be your job, your career, your vocation on the line? Mm -hmm. And as you and I might know, uh, you know, I don't know, a lot of us as adults identify ourselves through our career. And so the loss of a career is huge. Mm -hmm. Physicians, lawyers, anyone when there's a licensing organization behind them to come out and to say, I am an addict or I, am, I have a mental illness and you're good to go, um, then that's, you should, you should be deemed fit for work and there should be no issues. And maybe you go for more regular checkups than the, the, the person without a mental illness or a, a past example of that. But whatever, we should be accommodating. We should try our best to keep those people working and be fully functional members of society. How common? Uh, you guys just went off on a way huge tangent. I stigma. But. I I love it. I love it. There's so that's kind of the the beauty of this. There's a lot and, of barriers. There, yeah, there are yeah. so many barriers. There are so many different tangents of of what this conversation looks like too. Right. But how often do you see when you talk about um, these sorts of pressures, occupational pressures, to to quiet yourself in a sense? What, do you know any sorts of statistics that surround the number of people who might be dealing with these issues in an occupational setting? That's a good question. So, I mean, the, the, the mental illness and addictions don't discriminate. So the stat one in five will be suffering, will have a mental illness, standard across the board. So you can best figure that one in five in any walk, of, you walk out the street, same, same numbers apply everywhere. It, race, gender, Income level, nothing. It's, that's the number. Um, but that's mental illness and addictions, right? That's something severe. There's the mental wellness component too, and we're all on a bit of a mental health spectrum. We all own, have mental health, healthy mind, healthy body, right? Yeah. So when someone without a mental illness is pulling all-nighters or not sleeping properly or is not eating properly or is not exercising properly or life at home is chaotic, or they're stressing over finances, whatever, that's going to impact work too. And so that's, that's that whole thing that workplace has to deal with, that the insurance guys would certainly know because they see, and I, we do know it's a $51 billion issue. So it's costing. So workplace mental health issues are costing Canadian businesses $51 billion a year, which is a huge In amount. In productivity, you're saying? Lost days, productivity, yep. Absolutely. Uh, and that could also be accidents that, that happen because of issues that are on the job. So those are all, though, under that mental health spectrum. So that's not just mental illness, but that's everything. Um, and that's the other conversation to have, too. And, and I, what I really like tailoring everything around is that this conversation about mental health doesn't always have to be around mental illness. You can be in a room and listen to someone with mental, a mental illness issue and, and, and listen, but listen to the gems of how they're coping now, because that you can, anyone can use and apply, right? We all need to take care of ourselves for a lot, nice, happy, long-term, we're all, if, God, 
<laughs> I just had a conversation with someone today, this morning, who I said something about, he, he's just turned 50, and he said, I said, oh, you're at halftime. And he said, oh, no, I'm at the quarter mark. I'm going to live to be 200. <laughs> well, with said, technology oh, these good days. Lord, he said that. <laughs> like, wow, well, I right. might be 51% bionic by that time. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. And so, you know, whatever, my, my arm is not functioning very well. Okay, I'll get a new one, you know, whatever, <laughs> chip replacements. I have a friend writing a script about that right now. Yeah, so yeah. I'm all on. I'm all on that. There's actually a candidate running for president in the United States who's all on this. We he really wants one of these special Olympics that is all designed for people with body parts that aren't originally theirs. And so right. that could be a mix of people who are amputees and have special uh, limbs, but it could also be people with chips planted in them. It could be people on steroids, whatever medication there. It could anything, but it would be extreme sports. So these people would be doing things that the average able-bodied person couldn't do. So you'd be jumping higher because your legs are made of metal. The springboards. In yeah. Them. <laughs> they have little flying competitions. The future of Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just looking and going, actually, uh, compared to the others, you look pretty good right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the new model of an Olympian in the future. Absolutely. No, no, not Bill. Those examples compared to the other presidential candidates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, our Olympians are fine. <laughs> I'm very proud of our Olympians. <laughs> wow. But yeah, no, so, yeah, so anyway, so, um, but you, if we all want to live to 100, let's just keep it at a normal level, mm -hmm. normal, or 80, which is the life expectancy for ex-women. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be healthy. I don't want to lose my mind, and I don't want to lose the ability to walk and be upright and be fully functional, which stuff I take for granted, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to treat myself well, and so that requires me to take certain things seriously, like the well-balanced life. And, and, and I think that uh, people who have mental illness have to be, as part of their recovery, and, men, and addictions too, as part of their recovery, be super on alert for their mood because if things start going off, they want to be on that pretty quickly. Maybe it's to change medications. Maybe it's to talk to their doctor. Maybe it's just lifestyle that can accommodate the, whatever is going on. Um, and go to more meetings if it's a 12-step program for recovery for addictions. but Or talking, peer support, like all that, that's pretty big in mental illness too. So, but what, what do you do? But we have to, we as, as, as every human should be on those kinds of alerts so that we can be better parents, better children, better friends, better, better colleagues, better employees, better bosses, better whatever. Because I know that if I'm short on sleep, I'm going to be angry and snippy. Mm -hmm. Right, I don't, I don't want a boss like that. So I certainly don't want to treat any of my employees like that, any of my two employees, like that, <laughs> or any of our volunteers or interns like that. Right, and I, I like my friends. I don't want to be mean to them. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, avoid them or have to skip events because I didn't sleep the night before, and now I'm going to have to miss this. So, you know, I just want to be present, mm -hmm. and I think we all aspire to that. And so when when I hear from people who have who've just gone through so much and back to get the right medic, you know. Charting your course of medication can be a horrible experience. It can often get worse before it gets better. So maybe, maybe you know your diagnosis, but scientists, doctors are playing with your mind. And to get the right mixture of chemicals to make the balance right again is going to take some time and some tweaking. And, and a lot of the medications will cause weight gain and early onset diabetes, especially for schizophrenia. So what can, what can we do? to make sure that we are taking care of our bodies at the same time as our minds. So we are, 
we're alive and because happy. they are connected. Yeah, they are connected. Now you did make a distinctive uh, difference in uh, one of your sentences earlier between physical health and mental health. Would you say that when we talk about health on a whole, does that umbrella have an equal distribution in our conversation these days when we think about mental and No, and I think that's what's so wrong is that when I go to the doctors for a checkup, it's never about mental health, right? I'm never asked about anything like that. I'm always asked about physical issues, physical sign. I get people touch me and my doctor, you know, pokes and prods. Mm -hmm. Nothing about the closest he does is looks up my nose and in my ears and I know that's not a brain scan so he's not if you think that's a brain scan then you're probably with the wrong doctor yeah, 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 yeah. so there's no real discussion there at all so I think I think we do have to have I mean doctors are uh, now I this was this is a stat from a long long time ago but doctors get like one hour training on mental health in in there as as they go through medical school like it's no maybe it's a day or something is so minimal regardless yeah it's one hour or one day or something like that it's something that is so minimal that it is just non-existent and so they come out of medical school not knowing anything about really mental illness other than what you and I might know I'm assuming that's in western society western society and so what we need to do is is get doctors better trained early on some of this stuff. I think that that's, if, if I left my job and went to a new job that was all a passion-driven job, I think that would be it, is to get this mental illness, mental health, addictions training embedded into every school program because it's shocking that you see doctors prescribing people who are alcoholics or are addicts that have addictive behavioral patterns um, Oxycontin, for example, is pain medication. What the hell just happened there? Why did that person get a prescription for an addictive product to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe the doctor doesn't know. I think with all the media now, I think they're getting the picture. But that's just one example. Like, there's all sorts of different things that I think we have to really educate the physicians so that it's not that they're automatically making a diagnosis. I don't expect a family, found dis- family, found family physician to be a psychiatrist, but I do expect them to know when to refer a patient to one. Great point, because we all have family physicians, right. but we don't all have a psychiatrist or a therapist. Right. Still, I think, a, 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 do, you, do you know the statistic of your head, how many people in Canada no. do have But physicians? there's a huge shortage. I mean, it, it, no matter if we all wanted and, and got a psychiatrist, there's no way we could. I, think, I mean, the, it's like 300 to 1 ratio of psychiatrists. Right. I, I remember when I moved to the it's city and I didn't have a physician, my yeah. own physician, and I, I knew that was one of the things that I needed Need in order have. to have myself set up in the city, yeah. but a psychiatrist wasn't on that list for me. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. to know that, even just for myself, yeah. that that seemed to be the norm yeah. that I need to set up for myself but not having a head doctor in a sense. But you wouldn't get there by referral only. So you wouldn't get a specialist through any network other than your family physician. A uh, therapist maybe right. because they're outside of that that spectrum, but any specialist would need a family physician referral. Right. But I mean even those who aren't necessarily um living with a mental illness or some sort of addiction uh and, and this is my personal opinion I, I think having a therapist uh, having 
talk therapy or, or a psychologist, somebody to check in with the same way that you would check in for yeah. your body because I'm not a doctor. Well, I, I have a friend like that who went to her. She just want, she was going through some issues and wanted a psychiatrist. And maybe she could have done with a therapist, but she specifically said to her doctor, a psychiatrist, and he just looked at her like, why? <laughs> you don't need one. <laughs> and it was like, no, she wanted to work through stuff. And mm-hmm. she, you know, maybe because of the lack of well, stigma or you don't, maybe you don't trust your doctor, whatever. But the, you may not need a psychiatrist, right? They're, they're, they really, they can prescribe medication. That's the big plus with them. Right. That's the major you, difference. Right. But, but you, so you might not need that, but your, your doctor's first response shouldn't be like a question like, why? You don't need one. It should be, well, tell me more. What's going on? You know, let's, let's work through a bit of this and do some explore, like have a conversation and then take notes and then you might come find, the doctor might find with the patient, I think we've got a better idea. Why don't you see a therapist for a few months and see how that works, right? But not automatically so dismissive. So, you know, here, yeah. here I am judging someone and, and telling them how to do their job. But well, but it does sound like an, uh, a, uh, an actively destructive response yeah. as opposed to an actively constructive response. It's like that parent telling the kid to, you know, snap out of it, yeah. right? Yeah, you're fine. It's the same thing. It's just being dismissive. <laughs> just bounce back. Yeah. Not as easily done as that. Not for everyone. Every, no. You know, if you go to a funeral, every single person is going to process that grief differently. And maybe for different reasons, right? I might not know the person very well, and right beside me is the mother, right? So we're all going to have reasons for processing it differently. But every family, everyone who's close to that person is also going to process it differently. One person might be laughing and joking and, and, and you know, getting back to normal. And one person, it might be like, for, they're, it's hitting them hard, right? Mm-hmm. And they're... So we all have to process our feelings. And that's what I come, you know, at the beginning I was saying owning your own feelings and your, your feelings are real. And that, th- you need to process those. And that's one of the neat things, neat things. But with, with addicts is they haven't, they've been numb for so long. And so all of a sudden they're sober and it's having all these feelings. feelings and <laughs> how do you deal with that? Yeah. And so they have to relearn how to feel how to process, and if someone's been drinking since they were 13, 14, pre-adolescence, or let's say mid-adolescence, 16, mm-hmm. you're looking at someone who's never really felt an adult thought in their whole life. So, wow. yeah, mind-blowing, huh? So, there's wow. a lot to learn, and you think, we think we can shove someone in, shove someone, I'm being brutal, <laughs> shove someone in a 21-day treatment program, and they are supposed to come back fixed and fine, and they're not. Like, there's no way. They've been in a, first of all, 21 days, 28 days, even if it's two months, they've been in a bubble for that amount of time. Sure, they look great. They're back to healthy. They're eating properly. They're nice. They're smiling. They come back to the real world, and they've got all that life has to hit them, and and all of life's problems, probably lack of a good home, lack of knowing how to eat properly on their own, because they haven't been doing that. They got fed at the treatment center, but not here. Different environment now. Totally different environment. They've got people being mean to them, people putting demands on them, people being nice to them when they don't want anyone around. Like, why are you smiling at me? I'm angry now. And they're prickly, <laughs> right? They've yeah. got feelings. So that's a journey in and amongst itself. Maybe they don't want the same job. Maybe they've been a stock trader, but part of their thing was because it's an addict, there's addictive personalities in that. And, you know, the gambling side, if, they, if things can come out, you've got to really watch for cross issues with regards to, like, other ways that your addictive personality is going to come out. Gambling, eating, um, exercise, all sorts of things have to now be done in moderation, yet your job might be extreme. 
you might have to change careers. So how do you reflect? You might not want to be married to the same person you were married to because they might be a partying person, not an addict, right? There are some lots of people. They may have life, endorsed your earlier life, co-signed onto it, yeah, and helped you out, and so you that might not be a good relationship. Maybe you've you're now able to parent your child, but you've had ten years of not being an absentee parent. And now you've got to, you're, you're expecting their love because you've always loved them, but they don't know who they're dealing with now because your behavior's been so unpredictable. They've had their own journey. Whole new world. And so this, this will take years for them to figure out how to get, how to be better and how to be fully into, you know, fully owning their own feelings and how to process. So there's such a journey. And that's why I really love the word recovery and you're in recovery because it's not you're recovered. I'm not recovered from a mental illness. Or There's never a addiction. point at which... Never an end. Never an end. It's ongoing. Success. Check. Done. Don't have Done. to ever worry about it again. No. I think the best that anyone can do is put their head on their pillow at the end of the day and say, thank God I made it through another day. Right? Because when you're not going to be abusing alcohol or, or um, you know, not being in good mental health when you're asleep. So it, it, it's, you know, that asleep time is pretty good and then you wake <laughs> up and it's like, okay, another day. Yeah. Please, can I just not drink again today? Or whatever it, it is. Please, can I remember to take my medication? Please, can I remember to breathe and maybe get my meditation, maybe get yoga in, maybe to eat a balanced diet today? Mm -hmm. um, and not beat yourself up if you don't, right? That's the worst, too, is if you didn't That's leave a big that. part of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Actually, before I turn this off, if you can uh, just put any plugs in, like your, your website or, or um, somewhere oh, where yeah. people can access all of this information. Yeah, if anyone wants to learn out more about us, we're at healthymindscanada.ca. That is the best place to go for everything. We've got tabs up there. Just go to the events if you want events. We've got resources. Have a look around. Yeah, go to the events. Go They're to the amazing. events. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we're back. I guess, well, one thing I heard that just kind of stuck in my head was how do you become the owner of your own self-being? That's kind of an interesting thought. Owner of your own self-being. Yeah. Are we talking about your, your self-well-being? And can you really own yourself? Like, do you own your body? Yeah. Do you? Or is it just on Lend? Is it the temple you gotta keep clean while you're here <laughs> before you like you know somebody else is gonna move in you move on and uh jump in another body after another lifetime your soul leaves your body and a new soul takes over but the body's dug into the ground so i don't know how a soul would take over a body that's been buried into the ground okay so we decompose <laughs> we become one with the earth again yes we and all of the molecules that were once a part of us whatever energy we gave to those molecules are now going into the earth and yes. are reincorporated back into the world right we do we really own these molecules that's getting really deep that's <laughs> what everyone signed up for. If you're listening to this podcast, you signed on to listen to deep conversations with unicorns. <laughs> that was a unicorn noise. Um, Everyone knows. They've heard. They know do unicorns. you really own yourself? I'm going to say yes. I say no. Let's agree to disagree. Yeah. Okay, so why? Uh, why do you own your body? Because it's mine. I'm touching it. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty. Why do I... Because it's... I wake up in it every day. Mm -hmm. If I didn't own it, I could 
easily give it to someone else at any time. I guess where my mind is going, like, whether or not we own it or rent it, it's still our responsibility to look after it. Okay. And and the idea of ownership. Maybe the idea of ownership makes it easier for people to take that responsibility and want to treat themselves better, to eat more healthily, to sleep better, to be aware that... <laughs> well, if that's they're... the case, I'm not owning myself very well. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a way of... of in a way, putting the, responsi- the responsibility back on you for yeah. your own state of mind or state of being. Yeah. Maybe that's what she's getting at. If you, if you feel shitty, maybe take a look at what you've been doing to yourself. Yeah. Poor diet impacts mental health. Did you know that? Poor diet? I do know that because I spent the entire weekend having nothing but coffee and sugar and running back and forth between... The Bits Film Festival and Second City for shows and work. Not sleeping in between. Editing these things in between. So basically my diet was a sleepless nights and sugar. You should really be careful. Uh-huh. Diet. That's why I'm sucking on the throat lozenge because I I started to lose my voice. Because you haven't been sleeping properly. I know. I know. Sleep is very important for the mind. It's probably the number one thing. Yeah. No, totally. I was going through a long time where I wasn't sleeping a lot and had a lot of health issues. But now that's good. Oh, yeah? Are you sleeping better? Not really, but I'm sleeping earlier. But I'm still not sleeping better. But that's because I've got a super overactive brain that just doesn't stop. Hmm. Sometimes I like to take a, a pan and bash myself over the head so I can sleep. I don't know if that helps. I'm kidding. I don't do that. Okay. But yes. <laughs> I'm assuming concussions actually don't help with No. Sleep. They are actually bad for you. Did you know every concussion affects you even if you just hit your head slightly? It's still technically a concussion. Oh yeah. I've had several. I actually, I was mentioning to you earlier, I sent a message to my mom earlier this morning asking if she still had the information to my head specialist because I've had so many concussions. I have wicked migraines sometimes Mm. and my specialist has told me that I've had so many concussions that they are now comparing me to Sidney Crosby no that's how bad that's how many concussions I've had and how severe they've been over the years I wonder how much longer Sidney Crosby will be around playing I wonder how I'm forming coherent sentences yeah no that's true too how are you forming coherent sentences um I would keep putting sugar in my body something happens got a strong brain just yeah. work out that brain yeah insane in the membrane but you're absolutely correct food and sleep those are the yes. two first things whenever I get into like a bad mood or if I if I'm having one of those days where I'm like mm. nothing is going right I now my automatic reaction is to to check myself and be like, oh, okay, well, did you get any sleep last night? No. Cool. Can't check that box. Uh, did you eat healthily today? Well, I've been sucking on these, what are these? Ludens? Wild honey. So I was like, cool, honey's great for you, but when that's all you're having for dinner, for sure that's a reason why maybe my brain's not working all so well. Yeah. Healthy mind, healthy diet. Healthy diet, healthy mind. Speaking of healthy minds, we mentioned we went to a lunch and learn that they put on a couple days ago yeah. in support of Movember, 
incredible panelists and moderator there, a uh, lineup of gentlemen who were speaking about men's mental health awareness. It was really great. Mm-hmm. But something right before it started actually piqued my interest, and it was that we had another friend join us for the Lunch and Learn, and she was telling me about how when she explained to her boyfriend that we were creating this podcast about mental health, his immediate reaction was, oh, I didn't know Kaylee had mental issues. And then she spent uh, the next half hour, hour, arguing back and forth about, A, me not having mental <laughs> issues, which I do. We all do. Yeah, totally. Um, doesn't matter where I sit on that spectrum, but that, B, that wasn't the point, and that's not why we were making the podcast. Um, and, and it was a, a point of contention for them. Like she, she seemed actually heated about it, which obviously means it's a topic that needs to be addressed. Completely. And that's why we're doing this. That's one of the reasons why the moderator on the panel said that it was so important. Um, he was pointing out the differences between how open women tend to be talking about mental health as opposed to men. And how it's interesting there, there, weren't, there was a decent amount of women compared to men at the Lunch and Learn. It's because men are too cool to talk about their feelings. Yeah, that was part of the conversation that sometimes instead of opening up, um, and I don't think it's just men, it's uh, something that we do as humans, you know, you play it off and and you play the, like, I'm cool, I'm calm and collected, I don't need to talk about my emotions, which can be harmful if you don't open up. And we do live in a society where so many of us, like, I love playing the cool guy. I love, like... First of all, I love the idea that somebody out there is kind of like, oh, like, yeah, I knew Kaylee was crazy. I just didn't know she was crazy. And, like, the idea of mental health, just talking about it changes someone's perception of me. And yeah, questioning how comfortable I feel about that. Like, next time I see him, I don't know if it's going to be something that's sitting on my mind, if it's something that I'm going to want to address. Mm-hmm. If there's a cognitive dissonance that's cr- been created in my mind. But yeah, I love playing the cool guy. I'm like, eh, everything's completely fine. I think that this is also ex- a, an experiment for me to open up and not play the usher in She's All That. Like, <laughs> love <laughs> that movie. There's a cool guy. Like, he is. He, he's I think he's the perfect cool guy. example of the cool guy. There's always somebody in a film. There are archetypes in films. There are stereotypes in films. And usher in She's All That, when he plays the DJ, literally, he controls the tone of that school and of the film. As soon as he drops that beat, everything goes back to being fine, no matter what the issue was. Like, I don't know, lady put her glasses back on and she was uncool. Don't remember the film. But there's a cool guy in every film, and everybody wants to be that cool guy. The one that doesn't have problems. Yeah, but we all have problems. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is another point that Katie mentioned is how within Healthy Minds Canada they do use film as a, as a medium to spark thoughts in the brain. Yeah. I love the fact that they incorporate that into their work. Yeah. Film I think the reason why I was so drawn to the acting world was because acting in general is just an exploration of feeling. And as we spoke about in our first episode, we've both been through, you know, our own experiences with depression or anxiety or or those feelings of numbness mm-hmm. or lack of feeling. 
and how incredible it is to be able to then play in feelings because it's the the only indicator we have of being alive. Yeah. So speaking of feelings or lack thereof, something that really surprised me listening to uh, Katie is uh, the story she told about that woman who started drinking at such a young age that she didn't even know what her real emotions were. Yeah. She was an alcoholic first, adult second. And so essentially every time a, a problem occurred, something something that created some sort of cognitive dissonance or, or anxiety or her way of dealing with it was to drink. That's the yeah. pattern she developed for herself. And... What struck me with awe was the idea of having developed alcoholism at such a young age that she literally had never naturally experienced an adult emotion. It, I, yeah, the it, it's it's such a it's a scary thing to think yeah. about, especially as an actor. Um, I mean because because of the feeling that you get as an actor, like when you get to play emotions, I don't know, I guess it, like maybe that's our crack, or maybe that's a really bad analogy. Um, but we've all had nights that, I, I've had nights that I turn to alcohol, like you have a bad day and you go out drinking with friends, it's like the first thing out of your mouth when the server yeah. asks how you're doing is, Alcohol. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be so much better when you bring me two shots of tequila just to start the night. Yeah. Yeah. I've had nights like that. And I just can't imagine never getting to experience a true feeling, like true, true joy. Yeah, yeah, true pain too. But like you numb the pain, yeah. you're also going to numb the joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Like when you walk out of an acting class that you get a lot from, how would you explain? It's euphoric. It's... It's awesome. It's exciting. It's it's weird that we just, we nerd out on emotions. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is that we nerd out on emotions. That's what actors do. They're just nerds about the human condition, the human psyche, and being able to emote. Yep. I don't, I don't think that anybody else outside of our industry really goes up to their boss and, and says like, do you see how well I felt that sadness? Like, did you see how well, did you, did you feel that? Like, when I cried, did you cry? Or did I, you really believed that yeah. I enjoyed the raise you gave me? <laughs> Imagine is doing that, that in your real life job, though. I do do that in my real life job. That's why I'm considered the weirdo. <laughs> do, you not, do you not act like that? Like, don't tell me you didn't. Yesterday, you got a super exciting phone call of booking a five-day, and we were out on the sidewalk while you were talking to your agent. You started dancing in the middle of Dundas and Bay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm weird. Obviously. Yeah. You were living in the moment. In that moment, you were were euphoric. You were super excited. Mm -hmm. And it was a very truthful emotion. But regardless of whether or not we turn to alcohol or eating or uh, whatever it is to, to cope with or to celebrate, um, to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to replace an emotion, um, I think people do it on the general. Mm-hmm. People it's do so it on, normal. 
a regular basis. It's oh, not. I'm having a bad day. I'm just going to have a glass of wine. But even even outside of drinking alcohol, how often, like... I had a bad day. I'm going to go for a run, even though running is good for you. Yeah. It's still a way of sending out energy. <laughs> well, anything overdone. Yeah. I think whatever it is that you are... Any, yeah, in excess. If you want to go and drink, go out and drink. It's a part of life. There yeah. are so many businesses built on that because it is so ingrained in <laughs> our work society. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even if you think about even the moments where we're not drinking or we're not running, how often are we actually aware of our emotions, taking the time to be aware of how we're feeling at any given moment? Hmm. Maybe not like us specifically, I yeah. mean us generally. I would, yeah, I would say I feel like we're more aware of our emotions opposed to... I think we're trained to. Actors yeah. are trained to. I mean, that's one of my things my acting coach always says is when you're having one of those moments where, oh, this this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not usually like this. Sorry. That's when you have to sit down and be like, okay, what emotion was that? Why did I feel like that's not me? But that is me. It's just a different part of me. Always being aware of defining yourself, where you're at, who you are. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, that's interesting. The idea of excusing your actions or trying your self-being. to. self-being. It's, it's showing that you're uncomfortable with whatever it was and not owning that. Yeah. Part of you. Yeah. I guess it just makes me think of this ultimate higher awareness that I guess is supposed to be, you know, highest level achieved in life. <laughs> yeah, and you get the gold stars and win the princess, slay the dragon. But I mean, it it's something that, geez, there's an entire section of self-help books at Indigo that talk about... Pretty sure I have like 10 of them on my bookshelf. They're, I mean, there are also <laughs> books that are just great for acting because I feel like... Self-help books and acting books are very similar. Oh, for sure. I don't think there's a very big line, but I'm pretty sure if you were to slap the title of a self-help book onto an acting book, you could get that. You could pay. It could pass. Oh, yeah. Someone would read that and A, know how to be an actor without knowing. B, probably be a little more in tune with themselves. Well, the one book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck... I love how you pause. Is that not something that you debating? Am I? Can I swear? (laughs) Yeah, but that book right there in general, like I read it for acting purposes, opposed to real life purposes. But I mean, in general, it's kind of the same. It intertwines in in a sense. Yeah, I think we also do the opposite, where it's like for me, I one of the last books that I picked up from actually this is a while ago now. No, anyway, one of the. One of the last books I picked up from the library was called um, Neurologic, and it was literally just uh, an academic resource for neurologic pathways. But I found it so fascinating that I actually picked it up for writing purposes and acting purposes. <laughs> Interesting. As much as I'm, I also just like to geek out on that. But it was not labeled acting. It was not in the self-help area. <laughs> It was just yeah. a science book, like a fucking science Science book. rules. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Highest level achieved. Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill Nye, the science Bill, guy. <laughs> break it down. I hope you all feel smarter from that little break, dance yeah. break. It's a dance break. I think everybody deserves a little bit of a dance break, especially we like to get all heady and talk. And break it down. It's that moment of stopping... Everyone, you know what? This is your moment. This is where you stop. Take take a moment to sit back, breathe in deeply, and check in with how you're feeling. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say stop hammer time, but... <laughs> that's like, what hey, ha- that's exactly what Hammer was doing stop. at that moment. Hammer, hammer time. time. <laughs> the hammer dance. <laughs> that's what he did. He stopped and he realized... Everybody, stop. Check it out. Hammer time. <laughs> I wish people could see the things that we did. He felt something. He stopped and took notice of what was he in did. his He did. He's like, stop. It's hammer time. That's what it is. Oh, I just had an epiphany. It's hammer time. I get it now. Damn it, hammer. You got me. <laughs> that was the hammer dance, just so you know. I need genie pants. Can we buy genie pants? I have a pair of black genie pants. Actually, my mom calls them my MC Hammer pants, which is pretty funny. Oh, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> questions for you. Yeah. Not you. Our oh. audience. <laughs> oh, they can hear us. Uh, have you ever wondered about Hammer Time? Write in, let us know. But also, just back to seriousness. How do you consume art? Yeah, that's a more general question that should be addressed. I still want the hammer question answered. Yeah, let's let's see if we can get in touch with MC Hammer. Let's. Okay. But please answer Tanya's question as well. Let us know how you consume art, if you think that you do it passively, or if you do it with a critical mind. Like, if your mind is just never shuts up. <laughs> but way. also just write us about MC Hammer, please. Or maybe send us hammer pants. Would love you. Would love you. Totally. And if they had unicorns on them, it'd be even cooler. Exactly what I was thinking. Group mine, hammer mine. But to actually sit down and be aware of the piece of art that you're consuming. Maybe it's a regular thing for people like us who are in the industry because it's our work. So we tend to not sit passively when we consume art Mm. we are either critically analyzing it from an actor's standpoint from cinematographer the sound designer might be the only one noticing sound glitches what may have you but if you're not in the industry are you watching a film passively or like how how do people who are not in the industry consume media i guess i'm curious about that that is a good question i would love to sit in on one of those workshops that Healthy Minds Canada does to see how they break it apart because I guess they're they're more so reflecting on their own feelings mm-hmm. what they get from it mm-hmm. and for me as much as I love being affected by a story sometimes I think that because I'm in the industry it might be harder for me to because I'm criticizing or or analyzing some of the actors performances or lighting or the editing or the actual story that's why i find i have to watch a movie more than once yeah yeah because i'm always looking for certain things or like veering off on a thought of something that's in there i'm like okay wait i need to rewatch this scene does it happen to you a lot oh all the time yeah i have to but again it maybe it's because we are in the industry that i'm super curious about that because i don't remember the last time that i watched something passively without a critical eye Mm-hmm. And I almost use that as my guidepost. Maybe maybe I'm calloused in that way, so it's harder to get to my emotions in that way. You'd think it'd be easier as an actor. It's like, I cry at anything. Totally. But we're emotional beings. Yeah. We are professional empathizers. 
But when it comes to the technicalities, I find that I sometimes get distracted by them. And I'm wondering if that's a barrier for me. And I use that awareness as my guidepost for whether or not I consider a film to be good or not. If I am distracted by those things, then maybe it wasn't as strong of a story. But if the story owns me and I'm just so moved that I didn't even, I wasn't paying attention to those. I think we have a higher awareness, so I think it is harder for us to, I don't want to say judge, but to get out of it what... To connect with it? Yeah. Really? It seems weird. It's a, a backwards notion because on one hand you'd think that filmmakers, storytellers, actors, cinematographers, you would think that they'd be more easily moved because it's their work. So it's like, yeah, we're right there, easy to access. But then on the other hand, the same if time those technicalities... And breaking it apart. Yeah, yeah, if those technicalities are getting in the way, are we more calloused because we're part of the system? You think so? I think so. That kind of sucks. How do we undo that for ourselves? Hmm. Watch a movie in a completely different language? <laughs> Ooh, is that going to be our one cool thing? Ooh. Foreign languages. Stay tuned. That makes me think of the book that I'm reading right now. It's called The Surrender Experiment. Yes, you were telling me about this and I need to read it. Yeah. It's a book my mom bought for me and she knew I was going to love it. I'm pretty sure I Instagrammed a photo of the line that I am certain made her think of me. This book is about a guy who is exactly what the title is. He surrenders to the flow of life, the energy of life. And it's an experiment where he basically screws off and goes to the woods to be away from society, to be out of the system and to find himself through meditation. Wow. So to detach from that, basically unlearn all the learning that he has done that has gotten in the way of his connection with his being, his self, like that comes back to that question of ownership of your body. Like, are you really in your body? Like, what is your, what is your existence? Is it, is it in this corporeal form in this everyday life? Or is it somewhere beyond that? And are we convoluting it so much by all these technicalities, all the things that we learn about our system that are actually in a way making it harder for us to connect with ourselves or to hmm. connect with others and others uh, other people's stories yeah uh so we had something else lined up for our one cool thing can we hijack it and just plug this right now totally okay cool uh i will put all the information of this book so for those who actually want to go out and pick it up as well in the show notes but our one cool thing for this episode is called the surrender experiment My Journey into Life's Perfection by Michael A. Singer. And yeah, it's a story about a guy who goes to the woods, tries to get away from... It's kind of like he he Waldens himself, basically. Mm -hmm. Henri David Thoreau. It's the modern version of Walden. And he, in a backwards way, gets what he needs, but kind of the opposite of what he was in search for. So pick that up as the one cool thing. Well, now I'm going to go to my local Indigo and get that book. You can borrow mine once I'm done. Oh, you're so nice. I will even leave some of these coupons for free David's Teas in there. Ooh, I do. Probably not my Apple Store ticket, because I have to go pick up my phone tomorrow. Oh, yeah, you should do that. I should do it. Because who, how are you going to call me? Who are you going to call? Who going to contact this corporeal form if she didn't have the technology for it? That's a big word. Right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, on that note, since Kaylee doesn't have a phone to say goodbye... You can still hear me. (laughs) 
I have a voice. Barely. It's still there. I'm kidding. Okay. It's all a bag of lozenges together. <laughs> Honeysuckle lozenges. Um, yeah, so thank you for tuning in. If you like our show, subscribe on iTunes. Or like us on Facebook. Yeah. Or Instagram. The, the grams, the tweets. The tweets, the flicks. No, we're not on the flickers. No, we have a Tumblr. Tums. You don't have to follow us there. Tum, the Tumblr. Follow us everywhere except Tumblr. Nobody uses Tumblr. Nope. Do not follow us on Tumblr. <laughs> Do whatever you want, because we're totally not okay. But, and that's okay. See yourselves out. Peace.